Hello and welcome to another mining podcast with me, Paul Harris, and I'm joined today, as always, by Joe Mazumdar of Exploration Insights. Good afternoon, Joe. Hi, Paul. How's it going? Very well, thank you. Uh, we're both at the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference last week, and I dare say we'll be having some reflections on that as our conversation progresses. Now, um, we've been uh, putting together a, a, a chart or a spreadsheet full of companies uh, with gold resources, um, and we're going to be discussing that today, looking at uh, what the chart tells us, what the data tells us about potential uh, development opportunities and M&A opportunities. There's been a lot of exploration undertaken over the past couple of years and a lot of resource updates and maiden resources coming out in recent months. And so um, a lot of work's been done. There's a lot more gold out there that's been defined. Um, and yet somehow uh, market valuations are, for gold equities are lower. Maybe let's start there as a talking point, Joe. A lot of work's been done. A lot of projects have been well advanced, and yet their valuations are lower than they were 6, 12, 18 months ago. What, what's going on with the gold equities? Well, I mean, depending on what we're talking about, I mean, if we're talking about the suitors, the producers right now, uh, they're obviously getting hit by the negative sentiment in the gold sector because of uh, higher interest rates, uh, which has a negative impact on gold uh, because it raises the value of the U.S. dollar. Um, that's one thing that's that's happening. Um, and also uh, add to that the uh, the rising costs uh, that that's hitting everybody. But um, but for the precious metal sector, they're having rising costs in a flat revenue environment, let's just say, because of the gold price is stagnant to going down slightly. So uh, that squeezing of the margins makes people less, let's say, sanguine about, about precious metals. And then if we look at uh, developers, uh, you know, they're getting hit by capital estimates and people sort of wanting to stay away from them because they don't know, uh, you know, what the capital is going to look like and if they can actually raise the funds, um, given um, the negative sentiment in the market. Potentially, they could raise the debt. Potentially, they could get money from private equity. But if they ever had to tap the retail market or even institutional equity, maybe that's a little bit more difficult. And on the junior side, you know, we saw I was doing a graphic uh, in my presentation for the Vancouver Resource uh, uh, Conference, where where I showed the quarterly, the first quarter to show this, you know, to not you know delve into seasonality, but first quarter for the last several years, um, and uh, you know the the peak was last year. Uh, that was that was a pretty good number for uh, for a, uh, for raising money directed to gold. Uh, sector companies, uh, but it's fallen off uh, this year, this first quarter. And uh, most of the companies I talked to there were happy that they had already, already raised their money. And the ones that hadn't were more uh, probably concerned. So the, the financing window that has been quite wide and generous uh, the past couple of years, that's very closed now or only open for specific yeah, companies. Depending, depending where you are, we would talked a little bit about Canada is helped by flow through shares and people investing for tax incentives, super flow through charity flow through and, and that sort of thing. And then also in Quebec, there's more incentives. So some of those companies may still be able to raise money, um, you know, at higher 
uh, at premiums to where they're trading because of the tax incentives. The other companies that don't have this uh, access uh, uh, to that kind of uh, capital, uh, uh, it might be a little bit more problematic. Okay. Now, the, the list that we jointly put together is about 166 million ounces on there spread over, let's say, 45, 46 projects. Um, so there's a lot of gold out there. And uh, as mentioned, the valuations have come off. So for any company that is shopping for uh, for a deposit to put into production, there would seem to be some sort of good value out there in some good locations. Yeah. And so, you know, recently we saw an M&A where uh, B2 Gold uh, bought Oclo Resources, which is an ASX listed company, uh, basically because they had a lot of ground around their high grade Focola deposit. So that's some of the M&A we could see is very suitor specific. It might be consolidation of land with resources on it. But it's hard to see any multiple bids in the current environment for assets. And so it's more about, you know, what the companies want and what fits their portfolio rather than what the company actually, uh, you know, can attract in the market, you know, uh, by getting competitive bids. Uh, Great Bears case, uh, Ken Ross was looking for geopolitical diversification, was willing to take the risk on the fact that they didn't have a resource out yet, but probably maybe they had a good idea what it looks like, but still there's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of meters more that they have to drill to get an indicated resource. And there's an incentive if they find eight and a half million ounces to pay the Great Bear shareholders. But what we're also seeing is like the Madana Porcupine, uh, they put out a resource and they expanded it. And now they're like almost at 10 million ounces global there, uh, you know, at less than a gram. But the backdrop is that we're seeing some companies develop those kind of assets in northern Ontario and seeing an escalation of their cost profile that they're being negatively impacted, um, you know, and taking hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars off their market cap because of the capital um, that's escalating for them in this environment. And so people are wondering, well, does do these actual, uh, you know, large gram sort of milling operations in northern Ontario actually uh, are, 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 do they work? So that's probably had a, a negative impact on some of these uh, deposits out there that are significant, but uh, low grade. And I, I guess another factor there to add on to that is um, we've seen a lot of recent developments running into, into, into problems, you know, pure gold with a pure gold mine, cost overrun and geological issues, Magino, massive cost overrun that the the uh, the company Argonaut Gold hasn't yet financed yeah. the solution for. Heart, Heart Gold as well. Heart Gold, I Am Gold, uh, was it a five to $700 million cost overrun there? Yeah. I mean, some massive cost overruns. So um, are we in a situation where you think people are going to play it safe? Um, the chart is, the, the, the data is noticeable. There's been a lot of, additions to resources in the, the Great Basin. So um, Nevada, uh, Idaho, um, albeit smaller resources, 1 million ounces, 2 million ounces, that kind of thing, but open pit heap leachable um, deposits. Um, do, you th- do you think, therefore, we're going to perhaps see more action or activity in that sort of, that sort of scale? 
Yeah, I, I still think, you know, that Great Basin area is someplace that most companies want to have a footprint in. Um, and it's easier if it's an oxide, open pit, amenable heat bleach uh, sort of project, because if if it's Carlin style and even some low sulfidation epithermal deposits, there's a chance that the, the gold could be so fine and included in the sulfides that it would be refractory and require some pre-oxidation method prior to leaching it with cyanide. And if that's the case, permitting that sort of thing, whether it's an autoclave or a roaster, becomes more problematic because it obviously uh, increases the capital intensity, but also increases uh, the the timeline to uh, to permit, uh, you know, even in Nevada, uh, which is a, a better place to permit than most places. So most of these companies want to bring the oxide open pit heat bleach sort of thing to the market because they can say, oh, you know, we can get permitted in three years or four years. But if you have to introduce an autoclave in it, that's not going to be the case. Um, so that's some of the the issues with uh, like a company like Midas. You know, one, it's permitting, they're on forestry, uh, you know, where they have to, you know, have a 404 permit and they have to move a river and blah, 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 blah. Uh, more hurdles to get through, uh, uh, you know, and we've seen that on the copper side, you know, private versus public land in the States with Rosemont uh, and, you know, um, Resolution with Rio Tinto, Rosemont's uh, Hud Bay that uh, even though we consider the U.S. to be a, you know, a tier one jurisdiction, you know, it's not easy to permit there. And then, you know, I think we've talked previously about trilogies issues with the road going to the Ambler district in Alaska. So some of that might be another issue. So you've mentioned problems developing assets where the capital has gone up, like your Magina and your, um, uh, your Cote Lake, but also once uh, a junior has brought in, uh, you know, a so-called high-grade uh, deposit, underground deposit, it ends up not being so high-grade, lots of dilution, and it doesn't being end up being so low-cost because not only of dilution, but uh, higher uh, operating costs. So all of that, as well as the gold price, has uh, has has a dampening effect on, on the retail sector in terms of uh, you know investing in gold companies. Okay, I just want to make a, a sort of slight addendum there. You, you mentioned Midas uh, Midas Gold, which is a Stimlight project, and that's now called Perpetua Resources. Uh, so just to avoid any confusion there. Now, um, regarding what you were talking about in the sort of Great Basin, then um, what one of your top picks is IAT Gold, and, and they're going to have uh, the facility to be able to process refractory ore. So, what what kind of competitive advantage does that give them in Nevada? Okay, so if we look at it prior to the consolidation between Barrick and Newmont for a lot of their asset portfolio, which is which is key because Newmont really had a lot of the processing facilities, but Barrick had more resource upside. So you put that together, and the biggest example of positive synergies there would have been Turquoise Ridge, where where uh, it was treated at Twin Creeks, and they had a large uh, sort of a toll milling charge on the Barrick asset, and that had to make the cutoff grade much higher. Now you can lower the cutoff grade, and it's much easier, and there's lots of millions of dollars to be made. But it reduces the competition where a company with uh, Carlin-style deposit that's sulfide uh, to go get it treated somewhere else if you don't 
permit one or build one yourself. Um, now it's only really Barrick or sorry, Nevada gold mines, uh, I-80 with their Lone Tree Autoclave, uh, and then uh, First Majestic with their roaster at Jared Canyon. There is no other place to send it if you're not planning on building one yourself. And so that creates a, a comparative advantage for them uh, in terms of what they're doing. So for me in the future, if some company wants a footprint in Nevada, but not only open pit heat bleach, but to treat sulfide ore, um, you know, that might be a way in because this, this thing just needs modifications of permits uh, and capital to restart, but, you know, it gives you an option because toll milling usually doesn't make a, people a lot of money uh, when, when they do the mining and then they actually just send a concentrate to Barrick. They're not going to make a lot of money. And then also Nevada gold mines will treat it when they feel like, because they'll put, they'll always prefer their own stuff. Okay. Um, in the future, as IAT sort of beds down in its business model, does that make them a, a potential acquirer of other assets because they've got this facility that pretty much nobody yeah, else has? That's, that's the other road is for them to start looking at people that cannot develop their assets because they're these high-grade underground uh, sulfide carlin deposits that uh, you know toll milling uh, might not work for them. Uh, and so they could take uh, they could either be the toll miller, offer a little bit more competitive than Barrick, but also they could just take the asset. But right now they're focused on three satellite assets to feed the plant at Granite Creek, at Ruby Hill, Deeps, and McCoy Cove. And that's basically what they're advancing right now, a three-prong approach to feeding one central hub facility, which would be Lone Tree. Uh, what what what's attractive is because it's in Nevada and there's just not a lot of players in Nevada that have this kind of uh, uh, access. Okay, now let, let's move on a little bit. Um, not all ounces are created equal, and not all studies are done to the same sort of parameters. And where am I going with this? We 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 detailed and charted the uh, the reference gold price that companies have used to calculate their resources and uh, looking at it now they range from just around sort of 1200 US dollars per ounce up to $1800 per ounce so with an average of uh, around $1565 an ounce um what, what what's your takeaway from looking at this distribution of uh, gold prices used in the calculation of resources yeah, it seems like the new resources that are being put into um, the repository of, of gold resources over the last year or so uh, in a rising gold price environment have tried to take advantage of that rising gold price environment to book resources at incrementally higher gold prices. Whereas, um, you know, let's say the majors, which may not be the suitor for some of these companies, uh, their reserves are booked at 1,200 around there, like your uh, barracks and Newmonts, and their resources are booked at 1,400. So there's potentially at least a $200 difference uh, between what they're booking as resources at 1,400 and the average, which is more like 1,580 or something like that, closer to 1,600, uh, with some people going over 1,700 and 1,800. I think mid-tiers are closer to where these uh, companies are uh, booking their resources um, in terms of the average. So I probably think that more of the M&A may be from the mid-tier space, just because mid-tiers, one, uh, 
they can show growth easier than the majors in terms of incremental growth uh, because these assets would would have a bigger impact on their portfolio. Um, and and majors right now, you know, I think they're still focused on running to stand still. So they would need a major asset to come in to have a big impact. And then from looking at the sensitivity of gold reserve prices, if if Newmont were to go from 1200 to 1400 they would get close, close, um, you know, to replacing one year of reserves, which would be seven and a half million ounces. They could probably add seven million ounces of reserves if they change their gold price by two hundred dollars from twelve hundred to fourteen hundred. But for a major company, how important is this? Because looking at the chart, only eight of the resources we've uh, detailed or identified are at that fourteen hundred dollars per ounce or less. Um, sort of uh, reference gold price, and some of those are because the, the studies were done. You know, the calculations were done a, a good few years ago. Do the majors pay a lot of attention to that? I mean, presumably they run their own numbers with their own their own price yeah. stack. Um, so- I would say that if a major, if a major, and again mid tier different, but if a major is looking at an asset, they would have to run it with their own numbers because there's no way that you would pay for something outside your portfolio and pay for a premium. And then also embed it with a more oper- you know, uh, optimistic gold price and not compare it to your own portfolio because it's all about capital. So if you have a project in your portfolio that you don't have to buy that works, let's say, at $1,200 reserves, and then you're looking to buy something, but you have to use $1,500 for it to work, then you say, either I make everything else in my portfolio $1,500 so I can compare apples and apples. But otherwise, I don't see the point of, 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 you know, raising it just to pay a premium to acquire an asset, because in their own portfolio, they could probably get a big kick uh, with respect to increasing resources and reserves just by raising their own prices. I, I, I should think that would be the first step right now in terms of what's going to happen going forward. Okay. Um, another chart we calculated, another one that adds to the theme of not all ounces are created equal. We, we plotted the enterprise value per ounce of the different companies, and there's a huge range from about $6 per ounce up to about $140 per ounce. So um, just at first blush, some companies seem to be very overvalued. Some companies seem to be very undervalued. Uh, the average is about uh, works out about $41 per ounce. Um, how, how do you read this chart, Joe? Well, again, all ounces aren't created equal. And so uh, some of it, it it might be related to jurisdiction, where they are, uh, how advanced they are. Because um, some, you know, the, the tendency is for stuff in Canada you know, to get um, valued much higher than, let's say, something in Africa or South America. Uh, some of these assets might have an overlying uh you know, issue or an underlying issue, sorry, uh, like a permitting issue, social license to operate issue, uh, a metallurgical problem, uh, that sort of thing that might keep the ounces depressed. Um, So it's not just about how many ounces you have, the market value for them is sort of suggesting either it's, they don't do a very good job of promoting it, they're, uh, you know, an, a company with an asset in Africa, the asset looks great, but they're listed in Canada. And most of that audience really doesn't have uh, the desire 
to invest in assets in Africa, whether it's maybe if the same asset was listed in Australia, it might get a better valuation. So it might be something simple as that. Uh, but most of these things you can tell have an issue. Like, like if you looked at it, like Kinross buys Great Bear, uh, a company with no resource. Uh, but out there was feasibility stage reserves in Sabina, Back River, in the Arctic. Uh, Kinross works in the Arctic. I mean, they, they work under those sort of conditions in Alaska with Fort Knox. Prior to them selling their Russian assets, they obviously worked in those conditions at Kupol in uh, in Russia. So there's a company like Agnico that has a history of working in that environment. So could they add value there? I, I should think so. But they end up buying uh, a resource in, uh, uh, I mean, a resource-less um, uh, uh, exploration asset in Northern Ontario. They could have done the same thing with Marathon. But they didn't. They didn't uh, go for that one. They didn't buy the operating asset, which was Pretium, which uh, which Red, uh, which uh, sorry, Newcrest bought. So each company is looking at things differently, and maybe the case is that they don't want the development risk. You know, they don't want the capital risk right now. They'd rather do an exploration project that might be what fits in terms of their capital window. Uh, because again, we're not seeing a lot of multiple bids out here, so it's very suitor specific. And so, just as we looked at all the companies out there that you know that we could see uh, with that kind of size, but also it's almost we need to take another look and look at who's out there looking and to see what they would need and sort of merge the two to see who would be looking at what specifically. Okay, well, let's uh, take that as a, a good point to wrap up, Joe. Um, over the next, over the remainder of this year, what kind of transactions do you think are going to happen? Well, I would say there would be a, a few incremental transactions of people trying to consolidate what's around them. Uh, but uh, because the, the other big thing is like permitting is not easy. And if you have a plant that's been running for a while and you need to feed it, uh that would be another rationale for acquiring something close by uh, and so that proximity to plants i think is, is very important giving given you know hey how much it costs to develop in that it might be easier just to you know uh, permit um, your mine but send it off somewhere else and that might be what what companies are looking at so i i see a lot of those sort of transactions incrementally asset sort of scale uh in terms of bigger transactions that definitely would be suitor specific what exactly is the suitor looking for where are they com comfortable operating uh and you may not have any competition which is what you're looking for you're not you're looking to bring your comparative advantage to the asset and you get the premium uh and you don't have to pay that much for the asset Okay. Um, I know we're going to be talking about this again in the future and, and writing about it as well. This has uh, been a fascinating conversation, Joe. Uh, great topic. Um, thank you very much for, for joining us today. And thank you for listening uh, from another mining podcast with me, Paul Harris, and with Joe Mazumdar from Exploration Insights. Thanks, Paul.